Hello and welcome to The Grid Podcast, your podcast about our electricity networks and how they are at the heart of our transition to net zero. Uh, today we're joined in our Belfast podcast studio with uh, regular co-host and co-presenter David McDonald. Hello. And Chris Dore from TriConnex. Hello. Uh, and I'll let Chris introduce himself fully in a second. So we've been spending a lot of time talking about capacity issues uh, grid connections for all things to do with EV. We've covered transmission capacity and, and the issues there with renewables across the whole of the UK. Uh, we've been talking about industrial electrification projects and, and the SCR changes and reinforcement and everything else. And we were effectively having a bit of an internal conversation and it, we realised we hadn't really covered future homes. Uh, so today we're talking about connecting future homes to the grid and what that looks like. And obviously, you know, as homes now are electrifying, uh, you know, electrifying heating away from gas, there's EV charging coming online. What does this all mean for our grid and our grid connections to these homes? So I let Chris introduce himself. He's wearing his TriConnects hat today, uh, a sister company to Smart Networks, obviously, uh, who work a lot in the housing market uh, in multi-utility. So Chris, if you want to introduce yourself maybe briefly and yeah, a little bit about TriConnects. So I'm Chris Dore, Business Development Director of TriConnects today. I'm also Business Development Director of eSmart Networks, as we know, but today I'm firmly in the TriConnect seat. The business uh, has been around since 2010-11. It's formed to solely serve residential developers. And I think that's a really important distinction against our sister company, eSmart Networks. And it was formed out of a lot of experience in residential groundworks, remediation specialists, being a specialist subcontractor. And there was a huge demand from residential developers to uh, rid the market of this problem of utility connections on time. We spoke to an awful lot of people and we started the business on that basis. So from that point of view, in 2010-11, we uh, have grown to three offices, 250 employees, taking turnover over 350 sites and doing about 3,000 connections a month at the moment. So it's a very, very large scale. Brilliant. and. Well, yeah, effectively today we're talking about, you know, the future homes, electrifying a lot of that those loads and what that looks like. You know, so to try connects, you're saying three do you say three thousand connections a month that roughly? Was, yeah, absolutely. So that that's across all the utilities. So whilst gas is still part of the market, we are still doing gas, electricity, water and fibre. And so that's a that's a lot of individual homes. Yeah. And I think the, the key difference between the residential market and all of the markets eSmart networks work in is residential connections are fractional. You, they, you do lots of very, very small yeah. connections before you get to the total peak load. And that requires a different setup to the large-scale single connections we tend to do in, in yeah. eSmart networks. So it's a, it's a much bigger machine. There's different utilities over and above electricity. Um, so obviously we've got water and we've got fibre. So it's... It's well regarded in the space as sort of one of the expert multi-utility businesses. Super. And um, well, let's get into it. Why we're here to what we're here to talk about today is really well, what does kind of the future home electricity demand look like and, and how that is impacting our, our power grid in particular. Um so yeah, I suppose there's things like future home standards. Um again, this is an area I'm not you, you, yeah. that so, well schooled in. So I think if you start at the top legal requirement you know it's it's in law that we need to hit net zero if you look at the key areas of uh, of energy use and carbon um obviously domestic heating uh, and road transport to two of the big uh, yeah. areas that are difficult to abate so 
if you look at residential development, the future home standards role really is to just not make the situation of the existing housing stock being fed by gas predominantly any worse. The government have still got to deal with retrofitting, yeah. but at least we're not making the, the issue any worse. We're not building houses that then need retrofitting in a number of years. So that's created a few unique challenges with this uh, new set of building regulations, which is how the future home standards been applied in terms of, for example, the transition arrangement for a normal change in building regulations is once you've registered a project, you can build the rest of that project under those regulations. So there's a rush often before a change of regulations to register reg a few. Yeah, you, you get two, three, four hundred houses, which quite rightly in the consultation, the government said, we can't, we can't in all good conscience allow that. So the transitional arrangement for future home standard across the two different stages because um, it does run out to 25, 26, is per plot. So on the on each key date, plots that have not been started then have to meet the new mm -hmm. standard, which is very different for developers to manage. And just taking a step back, so future home standard... It's all, it's all about reducing the carbon emissions of a home in use. And in, in practical terms, does that effectively mean... The heating is electrified and it's kind of ready for an EV charger. Is that is that yeah, roughly? Yeah. So the the vast majority of it is it's around change of energy. So obviously electricity is doing a very good job job of yeah. decarbonising itself anyway. So you know there's a bit of a quick win there. I don't think anyone expected the electrical grid to to be as low as it is at the moment. Gas just cannot play a part in it long term. At the, at the end, it can in in the intermediate part, but generally gas is is done. And the other strange thing is if you look at it, uh, a standard residential house is now being asked to bear the brunt of a petrol filling station. That was never a domestic thing. You know, you, yeah. and, you know, I always say the equivalent is you don't come home to five jerry cans worth of petrol on your drive to top your car up. That's not the way it works. So from an energy point of view, all of the energy that was entering that development in terms of liquid fuel in the car and gas for heating, hot water and, and cooking, that's all now sitting on the electrical network. So that in itself is a fundamental change. That should be more efficient, though, overall, being on the electricity network then. Yeah, I think there's there's a an emotional attachment to gas. I think that's... So with house builders, bearing in mind they're selling a product and your home is very, very... It's an emotional purchase, as you know. It's a very high-value purchase. And people are less likely to adopt new technology yep. at the same pace as you would do with phones and cars and other bits and pieces. So there is there is some hurdles we've got to get over in terms of how electrical heating works compared to gas heating. It's a lot less, it's a lot more subtle. Gas heating is is muscular and quite brutal. You know, hit the hit the thermostat within half an hour, you can you can feel the effect. Electricity just doesn't work like that. So efficiency is fine. Um in terms of some of the successes we've had, I mean, this, we've we've been supporting our customers for a number of years now, and some of the early successes, there was a panic that you take a standard electrical connection for a gas-heated home, you add the entire EV charging load, you add the entire air source heat pump load, and that gets very silly very you, quick. You, yeah. you end up with something probably what, like, if you did that, what, six six times what you'd... Yeah, you'd, yeah, crazy. You'd, you'd allow and, for a standard house connection. And not dissimilar to 
well, you boil the kettle at the same time when you're in the shower when, you know, X, Y, and Z, you have an electric cooker on. So Yeah, and I think because it's the biggest change that's happened to the residential market, there wasn't really any kind of mechanisms to do those calculations. The standard um, loads that people would allow are pretty fixed and had been for years and years and years. And so they needed some thought. And I've got to say that the outcome has been really successful. We've we've managed to get some really good data. We've brought the industry with us um, as a, a you know generally the independents, the IDNOs, the ENA, and everyone have all got behind this. So there is now a new set of standards. That's really positive. That's done. So we know that everyone's moving forward with a robust set of data. Yeah, and just to take a step back, maybe for some listeners that wouldn't be as familiar with network planning. So effectively what you're talking about there is when a, a network company, a DNO, an IDNO, an ICP, whoever it is, comes to design a, a network for, say, a 300-plot uh, housing scheme, um, it's the calculation you use around, well, how much grid capacity per house do I need to allow at my, my main substation or at my grid connection point? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so effectively that would have been relatively low. You know, you made a lot of assumptions and there was lots of background data and everything to back it up to sort yeah. of say, well, look, not everybody turns a kettle on at exactly They've the same time. They've been trying to trust at that for a planner for years and years. Yeah, and ten, years. tens, decades yep. Yep. at least. And and effectively now there was this big question mark, well, what does EV charge? Seven kilowatts is a typical EV charger air source heat pumps what does all this mean what should the assumptions be mm-hmm. so you're saying that that's basically that bit's been settled we all we've got good that, data to yeah. kind of and it's pragmatic and, it's yeah it's, it's been a, a good result because the, the sort of ease in which you can just double those numbers treble those numbers um the the ramifications that are absolutely huge yeah. you're talking about multiple substations on sites multiple you know huge amount of land take the cost the time and ultimately the point of connection that you're asking for off of the grid the bigger that is generally, it's not a direct correlation, but generally it's further away, more expensive, yeah. and you may have to wait longer for it. And that's, and that's under the normal situation before we got into the, okay. the, the sort of capacity crunch we're facing now. And basically with, with any of the new housing developments you guys are looking at, you know, the, I'm assuming you probably engage with a developer, say, two, two years or something before they would hit the site or, or maybe years, certainly yeah. it, many months out. Is so one of the things with utilities we always say is the more time you give us, the more options yeah. you have. Um, and they're not you don't have much flexibility in residential because, yeah. as we know, off-gem take residential loads and protecting residential consumers very seriously. I mean, they really – security yeah. of supply yeah. is, is critical. You don't have the same level in, in uh, industrial and commercial and so on. So there's not that much flex there. It's about – how you give certainty to a developer in terms of yes you can have that capacity on a certain time mm. at a certain cost yeah so in terms of new housing developments that you guys are looking at and assisting developers with is that pretty much all electrified heating and things now is is that the way the the budgets and early land acquisition stuff we do um is 99 um all electric there is a few smaller sites now that the developers can choose to put the foundations in quickly um to lock in the previous set of building regulations but it's i'd say give it another six months and that'll be okay. that'll be done and what's the scale of those houses like is your housing sites that you're looking at is it tens hundreds thousands uh, triconnex's range is anything from 40 plots um our biggest is five thousand six hundred. um so you're you're into a year and a bit compared to decades yeah. they require very different views um, yeah they're delivered differently the scale is different and at the top end, that that's the rare occurrence we ever kind of dabble with the 33 kV. 
yeah. network. It's, it's you know eleven is is normally yeah. where we yeah. will where we would operate. Um, and that is fair to say one of the the issues of the future home standards is it's pushed more, it's pushed smaller sites onto the high voltage yeah. network, which could have got away on LV historically with gas. So that's also driven demand for more substations. And as we know from the other side, a substation. Certainly from a transformer point of view, that can sit on an EV charging site, a housing site, an office site. It doesn't that, – that the kit is the same. So the other thing we've got to face, one of the other challenges we've got is that the housing market is suddenly in a race for materials as much as anything else. And obviously with materials comes labour, comes equipment. Comes, more upfront cost. Yeah, yeah. More, more designers, more everything else. So. so there's like – there must be loads of moving parts here because, I mean, I'm no expert in, in the economy, but – it's all over the news around mortgage rates and and sales of houses and a number of houses that we need to build in a year, three hundred thousand. So, like, as well as the grid stuff we're talking about, it's, it's a, there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things we talk about in this race for capacity is um, all of the players aren't or all of the the runners, if you like, aren't created equal. And I've yet to find a measure or a part of that race where residential is on top it's generally disadvantaged and if you look at cash you look at planning you look at speed from inception to connection you look at equipment you look at the um the regulatory hurdles that we get you know, if you if you take a, a very very large ev um, installation is generally welcomed by a local authority because it obviously fits um, a lot of policies. It's you know it's part of the energy transition and so on. It's generally delivered on a site that has less impact. It's not normally stuck in the middle of a housing estate. There is a almost a habitual resistance to new houses, as we know, and sort of politically at the moment that's that cycles up and down. There's a big resistance there. I mean, we're looking target of three hundred has just been around. We've never hit it. And yeah, three, we're, we're currently predicting about 140,000 permissions at the moment this year, uh, which is, is far. And bearing in mind the issues that our customers are having with grid capacity at that level, to double it is, you know, is only going to make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. So just taking stock of where we're at then. So we've got our future home standards is, is pretty much coming in on, on anything, any sort of new housing sites being brought mm. forward. So, so that's basically meaning all electric heating, you know, preparing for an EV charger. So Obviously, we've got a, an increase in grid capacity per house, but as you're yeah. saying, the kind of standards there have been set. They're maybe not as bad as people would have initially thought. Yeah, we're happy with those. Yeah, yeah. so they're, they're, it has increased, but not mm-hmm. it's not massively. It's not blowing the whole thing out of the water. Um, but that that is maybe pushing some smaller sites that would have been maybe LV up into the HV and then yeah. maybe some HV subs up into even primary substation level from a grid, grid capacity point of view. And... Yeah, so so that's where we're at, I suppose. And this... I think for me, like naively, I probably thought, um, well, housing, like I know there was going to be more, you know, there's going to be higher demand because of those elements in the energy transition, but surely we're not seeing a capacity crunch for housing, you know, yeah. because I think certainly from my experience back in the day when we were doing housing developments here in Northern Ireland, you know, Everybody just expected the grid to be there. Um, I'm assuming that's the same in GB, and maybe there needs to be a change of thought process well, there. Well, just before Chris, like, yeah, the, I suppose the question would be, you know, TriConnects. You said you've been doing this for since 2013 or 20, oh, 2010, 11, or 2010, yeah. 2011. Like, ha, have have you seen a difference in terms of you know going for grid capacity and grid connections ten years ago compared to today? Like, you it, know, it's 
um, it's almost unrecognisable. And so one of the the measures that I would I would sort of use as a as an explanation of that is the concept of interactivity, where we do an application for a customer's uh, project, and the response from the, the DNO is that you're in a race. You know, you're in competition with someone for the same capacity, effectively. And we'd get, and that, that and that's a regional thing where you've got, you know, multiple applicants that can't all be served with that capacity at the end of a cable. One of you is going to have to have it, whoever's first. And there's various yeah. rules for managing that, as we know. We got one of those a year, and. It was so rare, we weren't really sure what to do with it, and we'd run around, we'd phone the customer, and we'd all get very excited. That, that's one a week now. That's that's becoming routine. Yeah. Where the guarantee of capacity, which you would have said, you, you need to give the customer an indication how much it was going to cost, they'd lock that into their viability when they're buying the land. It then takes an inordinate amount of time to get planning. You've obviously got the locals to get around. You've got Section 106. You've got all the various um, legal agreements, roads, drainage, all these things that you don't have on an EV charging site, for example. You've got to get through all of that before funds are released and you can start building. You could pretty much guarantee you'd have the same, almost the same offer. Might be a bit of inflation on the price, but you could rest assured that you'd have power if you found out at the start you'd yeah. have power. Now that is by no means guaranteed. So firstly, we're having issues at the start. We apply for it and I say it's interactive. So we're telling people you can't get power easily um, for a site you're looking to buy. The other issue we've got is that sites that developers are looking to buy are generally sites that fit within what's called a local plan. So residential development is a very slow process that involves a local authority, calls for sites, identifying sites they're happy can suit residential development. And then obviously you go for planning and it, so that has to have drainage, it's near schools and all those kind of things. So if you go through that, none of those apply to EV charging. Yeah, 650 kilowatt chargers is the same as 300 houses worth of capacity. So if that customer's got 300 houses, two years ago they decided to buy the land, it's gone through the local plan, they've got planning and they had an offer two years ago and two high voltage hubs have been built on that part of the network. And the other thing is educating people. It hasn't got to be next door. No, it doesn't work yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, That site may that now not have capacity to deliver it and be viable. The issue with costs for electricity is it doesn't add any value. So if my costs go up by two, three times because of the connection, how far we've got to go, offsite works, it's straight off the bottom line. Yeah, you're still yeah. getting the same electricity supply. Yeah, yeah, like like if I'm buying a house, I'm I'm not going to pay more for the house because the electricity connections went went up in price. No, and it's not something that the developer can kind of trade off. It's you know no one's going to say, well, I've got 240 volts, but the developer down the road's only got 190. It doesn't work like yeah. this. You know, we did it, used to say low volts was better than no volts, but I don't think that's an actual thing, really. You should avoid marketing. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Yeah, definitely stick to engineering. Um, so. Being a I would say necessary evil, any additional cost for electricity is, is you know can can be catastrophic to the viability of a scheme. And we've had examples of portfolios of sites because developers do have sites that are owned, um, bought unconditionally, that take a long time to get through that process of local plan and planning. That previously had a quote of twenty thousand pounds, and in one of the extreme examples, previous quote twenty thousand pounds, loads of load has been consumed in the area 
to get the same load, no increase in numbers, was a million. Now, that scale is, it's not, you know, yeah. 10% increase. It's not inflationary. This is structural problems. You've, yeah. You're affecting the viability of those sites. And that's the kind of stuff that developers are, are coming across. So developers can't accelerate because they're constrained by all of the geographical funding, SMEs especially. And, you know, there's a lot of press around, you know, small, medium uh, businesses that rely on bank funding once they've got planning. Now I'm calling them going, you're in an interactive race for a point of connection. We really suggest you accept it. It's £50,000. They don't have £50,000 because the funding is tied up to a, a permission that may be a year later, six months, nine months later. So there's a real disadvantage even within, whilst residential is disadvantaged to the rest of the industries, there's subsets within residential that suffer even more than than the, the large PLCs with lots of cash. Yeah, because you've you've got the kind of capacity, you know, there's the race for ele electrification is on, and, and which is a positive thing to see. You know, everybody is responding to the, the journey to net zero. Um, and obviously we work a lot with with EV charge point operators and and large industrial electrification projects and 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 we've been working with renewables and battery storage and everything and I suppose we we haven't really thought it through that lens because they're a much they're much more geographically flexible you know that that like we look at sites grid do grid analysis for them a charge point operator might say well there's a hundred sites on average we say well we find about 40% of them get ruled out for grid capacity issues. That's roughly your grid attrition rate on a, on a one megawatt EV hub. Uh, but that's fine. Well, they're like, yeah, well, look, there's 60 other sites. Let's go. Like, but that's, that's all consuming massive capacity, you know, yep. in the, in the year it takes your housing developer to go and get it planning or maybe two years or whatever it is. Like there's going to be a lot of EV charging built out in, in a yearly basis. Well, think, never mind all the other industrial, you know, yep industry electrifying huge gas heating processes we, we've seen what we've seen large factories go from yeah. five megawatts up to 50 you know just because they were using so much gas that's now being electrified yeah um, i think the, the the thing we're we're pointing out is we're educating our developer customers that the grid will not be the same when you come back you yeah because they have to go off get planning and and by the time you come back you've sorted your drainage out we've got constraints that EV, let's use EV charge point operators as a standard comparison. They don't get involved in nutrient neutrality. They don't get involved in uh, water neutrality. They don't get involved in biodiversity net gain. They don't get involved in all these other things that developers have to do. Whether they're right or wrong, that's not really the point, but they still have to do all of that to get permission to develop those sites. And if you look at one of the other things that recently has been an issue, which is reinforcement, and one of the things that I've done, tried to do a, a, as much as I can, is educate um, the market around this whole free reinforcement. And, you know, we've spoken about it and, and there's been loads of issues around developers being told it's free, it's free, at last it's free. You obviously pointed them to their podcast on SCR. You'd be, be amazed how many people I've pointed to the podcast. Is, uh, yeah. well, just for anybody that like and follow. Yeah, just for anybody that hasn't listened, just for the background knowledge more than anything, myself and David did do a previous podcast, I think, SCR, Significant Code Review. And just for a bit of background, it's really Off-Gem changed massive changes in connection regulation, which came into force at the start of April this year, 2023, which removed a lot of reinforcement costs from load connections, from domestic housing, from EV, from industrial electrification. 
But uh, yeah, if, if you do go back and listen to that podcast, there is a lot of caveats and a lot of loopholes. Yeah. And it, it, it is not the he- the headline figure that a lot of people were banding about or the, he- the strap line of reinforcement's now free, everybody's getting super cheap grid connections. Yeah, I think if you listen back, that that is definitely not the case. Is that what you've yeah. been finding, Chris? Well, we've been sent, you know, we've we've been in this industry a long time. We've got a lot of contacts and we do see a lot of um, marketing material that's sent around and obviously there's a lot of it in the public domain. And the concept that reinforcement is free and it's, you know, this is the end of all the problems is just misleading. And I think that's one of the things that we've always done is we've tried to be, you know, clear and uh, and and upfront and honest and try and be ahead of the game with our our developers. And the way the best way of putting it is it, it goes back to pre deregulation where people generally use the DNO and the reason they use the DNO is because there weren't any other options. Why they've moved to an IDNO or an ICP solution is that it gives you more control, especially if it's focused on you know delivery on time. Free reinforcement is you get it when you get it. Yeah. And that control is completely gone. If you're an EV charge point operator and you've got sites that weren't viable due to reinforcement, you can wait because you weren't going to get them built anyway. So when you're building another three, 400 sites elsewhere, you can just wait for those to come through the system. A residential housing developer will have a show home launch date, a build rate, an expected revenue. You know, they're a lot of money tied up in these sites mm. up front. And without that level of control and without that level of certainty, free is not the option. So perversely, we often go hunting for a solution that doesn't require reinforcement so that we can still deliver it as a contestable item. So it's something yeah. we can build. So, so housing developers, they're obviously up against it on cost, but but time and time and certainty of getting that great connection is is every bit as important as the actual cost of it as well. Yeah, and there's, there's so little wiggle room in a housing developer's pipeline of projects. And, you know, the, the vast majority are driven on delivering a certain number of units in a certain quarter, half year, year. And that's a revenue to make sure, you know, they're covering their costs and they're profitable. If you suddenly have two or three jobs drop out and not be delivered in that, then that can have a catastrophic, a catastrophic effect on that year. And we were saying that from a risk point of view, one of the things that we're seeing is we're pushing for grid capacity to be next to planning permission on the risk register. Okay, so let's just recap where we're at then. So obviously in the race for electrification, let's call it then, um, where everybody's looking to electrify, whether it's EV, industry, uh, and obviously you know, the new future homes of the future uh, have higher capacity um, requirements as well. Uh, and we did touch on about, well, housing developers are at a bit of a disadvantage here. You know, you've touched on... They don't have the geographic flexibility that, say, an EV charge point operator might have or or somebody setting up a new factory. Mm-hmm. You know, they might have the choice of a few different towns or cities. Um, they don't have the same, probably the is the, the speed to kind of get to the point of, of yeah. securing capacity. The, the way we put it is um, that the time we manage or compare is inception to connection. So the yeah. first time you have an idea you want to develop something to actually the first plot once you've you've locked it in you've got your first plot live everything's live that's the that's the time yeah. period so if you look at i want to build some re, you know some high powered charging in a retail park you do one deal with a large retail park operator and then every one of those sites as soon as you found the site you've checked it, it it's weeks or not years yeah so that's the other issue is that, you know so you can move it you can you know install yeah. it very quickly 
standard designs yeah is we're also you know the other thing that's speeding the guys up in ev as we know because on the other side of things we're, we're working hard on this is apart from some of the local context in terms of where you're putting the charges and whatever else the bases the substation equipment the switch gear all that kind of stuff is is the same yeah in housing we've got a lot longer um sort of time from sign up to when the equipment's coming in we've had to change to higher efficiency transformers on some sites because they've been in train for so long and the original sign up when the customer wanted to go ahead was two or three standards ago so yep. there's even there's, there's such small little issues and they all stack up yeah. Yeah. and there'll be stuff there even going forward again like getting a bit engineer nerdy on it but even in terms of like usage of sf6 going forward <laughs> and switch gear and whereas as you say you'll get some kind of transition period from a dno or, or you know how we're going to implement that there'll be a transition period even in terms of equipment manufacturers um but if you're over that long period of time you know, you may find that you might need a bigger footprint for those non-SF6 solutions. You may find, yep. you know, there's, there'll be different variables there yeah. and those will affect the housing because of their long-term piece, which I'd never really thought yeah, of before. You know, you've got highways works, you've got Section 106 agreements, which is where a developer has to contribute to the local, yeah. you know, local authority um, for a list of things, whether it be, you know, libraries or schools or playgrounds or whatever it might be, transport. Those things take time to negotiate, whereas sticking 650 kilowatt charges in a retail park, mm. you're not into that level of planning. The planning is so much easier. Uh, it's not easy, easier. Cause I yeah. know there'll be some and, uh, some challenges out there. And I'm just trying to think from a grid perspective as well. Then, you know, the challenges facing housing, we, we touched on, on on our SCR podcast, actually, some of that new regulation. Actually, there's, there's pieces that will, in my opinion, in our opinion, in a way, look like they penalize housing developers specifically when it comes to looking for grid connections mm -hmm. around the whole speculative development definitions you know a lot of them are literally pegged to housing plots and, and all this sort of thing so there, there's new regulations come have come out which obviously are harder on the the housing developers in terms of their grid capacity and, and that race for electrification and then as well, seeing more and more milestones and grid offers as well, um, which yeah. you know look to take capacity back or, or look to withdraw connection offers. Yeah, and I if, think that if, if housing developers don't move at, at the right pace as well. So going back to the interactivity point, we've never seen milestones. I think one scheme in over ten years, and so we know that's been around for a long time. That that tool has been there, and obviously it was generally used for um, the renewable market when it was in its uh, its absolute uh, peak to stop people. You know, yeah. obviously, already projects exactly. Stop, stuff. you know, stop people just going around asking for capacity um, and then trying to do to do deals afterwards. So, we were quite surprised when we saw it on our first residential development, and it was a pretty low scale. It wasn't massive, but those those milestones. If you take the ENA standard, it's almost impossible for a residential developer to meet those standards. Six months, six months, twelve months, and so on. Um, so we are still working with the DNOs to go, you know, what does the planning part mean? What does ability to, to yeah. enter legals mean? And also it's it's another thing for developers to get used to. And they're there to build houses. Yeah. You know, we we talking like like the utilities is the only thing they have to worry about. Of course yeah. it isn't. And they've got structural changes, they've got triple glazing, air tightness, they've got new record keeping, they've got wastewater heat recovery to do, they've got 
you know, wider wider cavities means bigger. Into, all their standard house types have had to be redesigned. It's yeah. a massive undertaking, and they've got to deal with everything that's outside of the meter as well. So it's it's been a challenge for okay. for house builders, and certainly in the last couple of years. So, so I suppose that let's take a step back then. So you know, trying to put myself in a housing developer's shoes here. You know, you've got all this stuff going on, getting getting your grid connection and, and your electricity into the site. That's only you know one one issue out of a whole remit, um, and obviously that's why. Well, I'm assuming that's why the likes of TriConnect exists is to try and take that pain away. Um, but it, it, I suppose it's not all gloom and, doom and gloom. That, like this, this is all a positive transition. You know, mm-hmm. it is all moving to net zero. This, it's really positive that this is actually happening at scale now. Uh, and and we knew there's going to be challenges. You know, if it was easy, we would have done it ten years ago. Yeah. Um, but like drilling down, like so say i'm a housing developer like how how do i navigate this or what what is the way forward here or what what would your advice be or 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 is there anything you guys are doing in try connects even to, to try and help solve this yeah i think we've we've come out of the work out what the new world looks like we've we've had to sort of the, the old to new we've done that that's that's locked in so the next phase of this and i think we've got to assume that this grid uh issue is going to be around for the short to medium term um, I don't think anyone's deploying tens of millions of pounds worth of equipment to to do this consistently over the UK. So the first thing, if I have two minutes with people, the first thing is get grid connection to the top of your risk register for every single project next to planning. Because the best way of saying it, and I said it to David earlier, a job with planning but no power is no job. You know, yeah. it is, it is not a development. So the first thing is to stop look at your entire portfolio everything that's right from the piece of land you're looking at to something that you're just about to to start and make sure you understand the grid situation today because it can only be today for your entire pipeline once you've done that you should be working with someone that basically takes responsibility for keeping you up to date so we always say we'll let you know when there's an issue with the grid you worry about everything else your side of the meter We've got you as far as this side of the meter is concerned, but we do need developers to build a rapid decision-making process when something like interactivity comes up. We know we have, you know, you get 10 days to say yes or no and 10 days to pay. If the answer is no, that's fine, but we need an answer. So we need the MD, the commercial director, the land director, the technical director, whoever it may be in that organization to first know what interactivity is yeah. Know the implications, both from the point of view of obligation to pay, but also how much of a risk you know, grid capacity is. And get together and go, are we going to buy this site? Do we want the site? Is it already a good one? You know, are we buying it direct with someone? It's one to one. Yeah, great. Are we open market? We've been in the gates five others. Do we think we're likely to secure it? Have we got the cash? All those things, but they need to have that understanding before they can make that decision so that's the other thing so that's their part of it we'll always let them know if it's interactive and we've completely restructured the team to be completely focused on on grid uh i like a little bit of a shout out for you brian in terms of how much work you've done with them in terms of uh, upskilling them around uh, these grid issues so so that's the first thing stick it up the top of your risk register make sure you've got a clear excel spreadsheet developers love excel spreadsheets with all their projects on that tells you the current status of your grid uh, across everything and 
make sure you you've got someone who is is looking after that and keeping you informed. Okay, well that sounds sensible, really. Yep. Um, I don't think is there anything else you wanted to cover, or I think the the only other thing that I've I've seen and it is really really fresh that's emerging in the market is when you do have developers having done that exercise occasionally there will be sites that aren't viable anymore sitting here at the moment you know within a reasonable time frame that the cost of getting power or the time it's going to take for you know large scale grid uh, upgrades to t- to happen they could be dead sites effectively and that's a major problem yeah so i've seen a couple of kind of offers in the market saying it's okay we can connect your houses with lower loads um, or lower capacities and so on because we can bring batteries and we can bring this and we can bring that that's concerning because it's almost preying on developers that have got sites that are in a uh, having a big issue i'm concerned about the security supply i'm secure about the off-gen relevance of that and how that's actually going to be done in practice but if you're faced with a site you own that's cost you multiple millions of pounds yeah, yeah, you can understand why people are interested in that. Yeah. And there's stuff to be thought about there. But at the end of the day, security supply is only going to become a bigger thing yeah. in this new world because, you know, you don't have your gas. You, you know, yep. you're going to have to, your, your, cars. your car's going to need charged. You know, so electricity security supply is going to be critical for consumers going forward, and particularly for domestics. So, like, to start messing with that, you know, you nearly need to, if nothing else, you need to at least maintain the security supply standard that you currently yeah. have. And I think like we, we've obviously been involved in designing in sort of battery and PV schemes and things into different EV charging type applications. Um, you know, there's the likes of timed and flexible connections, even bus charging and, and, yep. and all our different applications like that. But the, there is a very strong reason why Offgem in the regulation update said flexible connections will not apply to domestic customers, you know, and... I would I wholly support that as well. You know, when it comes yeah. to domestic, don't the flex uh, in the network can be managed by the DNO by utilizing flex that's maybe available in those other areas you talked about. Yeah, but they can't flex domestic as in terms of well, you know, you have no supply or you can turn yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can you can use uh, market driven mechanisms around reduced billing prices and all that to manage kind of more global kind of network issues. But at a point of connection package substation level i i wouldn't want to be um well the, the way i say it is you know you can play with the network once you've bought the home i mean generally developers won't be installing this equipment batteries yeah. and stuff because it doesn't improve the ticket price um people generally don't understand it and it takes up space and so on but if everything goes wrong you need a permanent completely well-rated you know standard connection to the grid if you buy that house, you've got full fiber and you've got a power supply. You can play with all the technologies, all the smart stuff. You can have tariffs that mean you're only paying a couple of pence a kilowatt hour overnight. As you say, the, the sort of structural yeah. behavioral stuff, you can control your fridge. from All of that is absolutely fine, but it needs to be backed off with a solid, permanent, hard, you know, grip For, on, on the grid. Yeah. And I think with the exception of rented so private rented or student accommodation where a developer can can choose to throw the bills in so you know you'll pay a certain amount per month that you include your fiber your electricity and everything which does happen then 
you can play around all day long because you've not got domestic M-pans, you've not got domestic meters. So I think with that exception, I'm, I'm concerned that developers are being, there's just, just that noise in the market where it's confusing. And, mm. and I think I'm going to do, that's going to be my next okay. challenge now. The Sounds future. like a future podcast. I, I have a feeling it's certainly in, in development and it will uh, watch this space. And just in terms of the actual capacity issues as well, you know, we are seeing them spread across the, you know, like a lot of the GSPs, like transmission mm-hmm. substations, West London, for example. You know, we were looking at uh, electrifying bus depots in there. Again, basically just there's no power of any significance to 2030. So um, I'm, housing developers will be facing that same issue and, and we're seeing that pop up across well, the country. We, so it, it, th- this is a very real current issue Yeah, we, today. we've got areas. I mean, it's it, it's... We're blessed to to have you guys over here because you know there aren't any other residential um, multi utility businesses that have got that level of of capability, and there's no coincidence that Norwich and Braintree are two areas where if you are trying to connect a new housing development, you're going to struggle, and they happen to be two areas where two very large electric vehicle charging uh, installations have been put in, which are fantastic. You know, cutting edge, top top large. They're 3,000 houses worth of power. Mm. And so, you know, when you've got those kind of neighbours landing, uh, it does have an effect on the network locally. And there is only so much coming into the GSP. You know, once it runs out, it runs out. And we've got that in Braintree, definitely, where we're we're based, um, uh, one of our offices, obviously. Um, We've got it in Norwich, some on the south coast, west London. So there are areas, almost no-go zones at the moment for residential development. Then you overlay nutrient neutrality where you can't build because you're releasing nutrients into the water and so on, which is South Coast, Norfolk. The world's getting quite small for house builders. Mm. And we don't need that at the moment because there's yeah. enough um, yeah. targets you know, to meet. There's enough challenges. Yeah, and there are targets to meet. And I think we can only keep saying there's underlying demand for housing so long because that will not create planning permissions. That will not create, you know, coherent regulation and so on interesting so in in summary get looking at grid early get on the the risk register high up the agenda if you are a a large housing developer and and get talking to somebody that is is looking after your grid and and keeping a tight eye on it really is yeah and and understands yeah and understands what you're there to do which is build houses yeah And, and i mean that's a very common theme i think you'll probably find most of our summaries say that you know, so we've done it for renewables. Yeah, we've done it for industrial and commercial, and we're now saying actually, it's the same at the housing level, particularly when you're looking to build out housing developments of forty to to five thousand. These things actually, in the core of it, the grid capacity pieces is, is going to be really critical and it's going to be high up the risk register and needs addressed. Yeah, and it's, and I think we can all agree there is no overnight solution to this. There isn't a technology or something that can suddenly appear to. Um, as, as you said the other day, David, you know this is just not about putting loads more copper in the ground. Um, we need to, you know, we need we need to basically uh, wait this out until the, the grid grid catches up. Yeah, and it goes back to that was it that quote from uh, I think it was National Grid CEO. I, I could be wrong, but um, National Grid transmission level were saying they're going to have to build. Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. But it's something like seven or ten times more infrastructure in the next decade than they built in the last 30, 30 or 40 yeah. years or something. Yeah. 
I've definitely butchered that quote. I, I quoted it I properly. It seven, and, maybe, but yeah. yeah but it, it just goes to the scale of like National Grid do have the plans there. There's yep. plans in funding. They're doing a massive amount of work to release a lot of this at transmission level, as are the DNOs. Yep. Uh, the SCR was really good. It's unlocked a lot of funding for that as well. Um, so yeah, the, the the picture isn't all gloomy. Like lots of stuff is happening, mm-hmm. but it's about how you manage it in the here and now. While like a lot of that stuff is massive time skills, yeah. and the levers are all starting to move now. Yeah, you know you've you've heard this around. You know, you, to decarbonize the electricity grid, you need the renewable connections. You know, to 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 get towards net zero, you need to change in housing and transport. And we're talking about EV. Like it is all moving. You know, I yeah. was probably at conferences five years ago talking about this stuff and it still felt a wee bit out there you know a wee bit futuristic five ten years ago but we are actually seeing we're seeing it happening on the ground we're seeing progress at regulatory level we're seeing progress in the dnos so it's now managing this interim period that we make because what you don't want to do at this point in time is like lose out or pause because we need to keep going forward so how do we make the most of this interim period so that when everything is there then we're fully on for the, the 2050 yeah. targets. Yeah, and it, it is about, you know, we should be targeting areas, building new housing where, where the grid can cope with it, you know, while the other bits of the grid get upgraded. And it's all about that really, isn't it? And, yeah. and smoothing that transition. Yeah, and as you say, is whilst we've outlined some challenges, it is positive. Yeah. Because I think it was the, uh, I think it was the HBF released this week. It's £135 a month cheaper to to run a new home compared to a, mm. you know an exist part of the existing housing stock so you know these new homes will be very 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 efficient and that's the other thing which underpinned the the, the relatively low um loads we were able to get away is that the amount of heating required into these very thermally efficient very airtight homes is is really really small and yes. you know we do joke about you know you you do a roast dinner and you're going to be walking around in flip flops and shorts and and it's going to be difficult to cool your houses down. Not in Belfast, um, Chris. Not no, not from the weather that, uh, that we've seen today. No, um, but so I think it's you know the outcome for the consumer and the environment and exactly where we're heading is is absolutely the right thing. It's just that we've got to navigate this um, this rather skewed race for our house builder customers. It is. Uh, We've got we've got a way of doing it now. Um, we can't. There's no magic wand, unfortunately, but we can keep everyone at the front of of mind. Keep it, you know, keep it at the top of the risk register. Keep everyone up to date, and uh, effectively, they don't have to worry about it until we tell them they have to. Perfect, brilliant. Well, uh, on that note, I think thanks to Chris for, uh, making, for the, having me. the flight over to Belfast today to join us and, and talk all things housing. Uh, definitely, it's a topic that I, I'm not overly close to, so I, I learned a lot there. That was really useful. Thanks. Uh, thanks to David, as as usual. No problem. It's been good to, as you say, see it from end to end now. So, um, yeah, we'll keep you updated as we go along. Yeah. And we will be back with a few more episodes. Uh in the not too distant future, we are still running the tr- transmission capacity crunch mini series. Uh, we actually need to get caught on that. There's so much happening in that space. Um, the rate of pace of change around everything grid at the minute is is really really fast, which is really good to see. There's so much happening, uh, so we will be getting caught on that, uh, and we'll have a few other th- updates and podcasts uh, in the mix at the minute, and a few more guests coming on as well. Uh, on that note, you can like or follow us wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, YouTube, YouTube, 
Uh, David prefers uh, if you listen to him rather yeah, than watch him yeah, on YouTube. Not, I'm not a very, I'm not a very good man, really. Uh, so do hit the subscribe button. Uh, feel free to email or comment on LinkedIn or anything as well. You know, throw questions at us if there's a topic you want us to cover. Uh, anything at all, send it in. Uh, we we do uh, genuinely like uh, picking up the discussion and engagement with people. So um, we have had a lot of discussion around the transmission one. Uh, a lot of pe- a lot of people were interested, uh, so we definitely we have a lot of requests to follow up on that with a, with a part two. So we will be doing that, but feel free reach out, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks.